Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And yes, you are seeing a different studio today. Um, I I forgot uh, last night uh, the roofers were going to be coming out today to roof my house. I have two dogs living with me and my son. And uh, it sounded like a hurricane going on or a tornado in my house. So I haphazardly grabbed all my stuff, ran in my office, and we are going to be taping today from my Premier Investments of Iowa office. So today I'm really stoked, really excited to speak with Jay Schiffman. Had a chance to briefly share some stories before we recorded today. And he's got a quite a compelling um, story and certainly embodies the living undeterred mindset. So, Jay, welcome to the show. And um, how you doing today? Well, I, I first off, I'm so appreciative of you having me and obviously so appreciative of the hoops you jumped through today to, to make this conversation happen. Um, thank you for, for, for doing that. I'm uh, doing all right, as you and I were talking about beforehand. Uh, uh, the last couple of days have been rough as a Cincinnati Reds fan, so trying to to move beyond that. Uh, and and you know, it's it's. Um, I don't know if it's like that for no- most people. I think it is because you know we're getting into tax season, and uh, what what better time to really sit down and look at your finances? But I've spent the last couple of days with my team uh, this week and, and last week, really looking at you know the state of our business and in the where we go from here. And and even when those are good conversations, they're difficult conversations. And so it's been right. uh, it's been a tough week of sort of doing what humans do not do well, which is trying to map the future. So uh, definitely excited to take a break here and chat with you. Well, I, I looked at your bio and the first thing it hit, hit a lot, a lot of similarities between what you and I are, are trying to do. But a, a vulnerable storyteller and stigma destroying speaker. First of all, I love Thank your you. hat. Your hat's Thank awesome. Um, so tell me, tell me what that really means in 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 your uh, your definition. Yeah. So uh, there's sort of two uh, periods of my life that stigma really made difficult. Uh, not just when I myself was at my lowest point, which we can get into the details of that if if you want later, but. <clears throat> When I was at my lowest point, I didn't talk about it with a lot of people because of stigma. Uh, you know, right. I, I felt that nobody really wanted to, to listen. Nobody would be there. And of course, when I, um, you know, did survive, I, for the listeners or watchers who don't know me, I, I've survived an overdose. And w- yeah, that'd be good to hear a little background about what got Yeah, me yeah, I don't, yeah. You know. I'm happy to, to tell that, but I did survive an overdose. And of course, when, when that happened, right. uh, people came out of the woodwork to be like angry with me. Like, how could you not tell me you were struggling? You know, I thought we were friends, that kind of stuff. And of course, I realized after that, after that, that it was just in my head that these people didn't want to talk about it. Right. It, it wasn't real. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't reality. That's just the stigma of struggling with whatever, but especially when your struggle is mental health and, and addiction. And then I kind of think even worse, about five years into recovery, um, I realized, and this was honest to God, soul crushing to me, like looking back, it still pains me that even though I myself was in recovery at this point, like I said, five years in recovery, when someone said Mm. the word addiction to me or addict, which is a word I hate, I didn't picture me, the person who had gone through this. I pictured Mm -hmm. this stupid stereotype that we're taught from Mm -hmm. a young age of what an quote unquote addict looks like. Right. 
And mm-hmm. now that I'm going on or 12 years in recovery, 12 years this month, and I work in this community and I, I I know so many people who are in recovery, so many people who are currently struggling. And I've realized, you know, and I again, this is a much longer conversation, but I've spent my adult life now studying the history of the war on drugs and how, why we're taught to think this about addiction. And it's just so hurtful to me that. Uh, how I felt about people like me that I was somehow special mm-hmm. or the exception or all of this BS and all that is is again stigma of oh I'm I'm not I'm not like those people which is just an awful mm-hmm. awful thing to think especially when you know I tend to think I'm a good guy I'm a good person and yet here I was mm-hmm. you know dismissing an entire group of people thinking I was better than them. And and that's just that's mm-hmm. just so awful to, to look back on. Well, certainly good people can make poor choices, you know, and that's that's typically what happens with most person that's most people that are in recovery or, or battling with substance use disorder. If you peel back the time and go back to when it started before they became, you know, addicted, you know, they were just normal kids, normal people. Um, my son at his stage was like 15 or 16 when the doctor gave him Adderall and I coached him in basketball. You know, he was just a typical, nice young kid. And then all of a sudden that door got cracked. And next thing you know, you know, he's in prison five years later, you know, it just went from, went from zero to a million overnight. And I think what motivates me, and I'm sure this motivates you and probably what led you to to uh, get involved with Choose Your Struggle, which I want you to talk a little bit about the organization that you run, uh, how that works and what your um, goals are with that. But going back again to how this kind of unfolds in front of us is a lot of time it just starts so quietly, you know? And I I can relate to, and you can as well, uh, the helpless feeling that parents have and, and siblings have. I mean, I posted something the other day that there's 676, and this is this is astounding, Jay, there's 676 Americans a day that die from overdose, suicide, and alcoholism. 676 a day. Now, you take you take just the immediate family, brothers and sisters and mom and dads, okay? You talk about collateral damage, and then you add in cousins and nieces and nephews and neighbors and teammates, and 676 people every day, you are into a ridiculously large number of people adversely affected when one person dies um, from these issues. So, you know, I I applaud what you're doing, trying to break the stigma, get out and talk about these things. Um, I think the key, the key thing for you that probably you'd have to agree with is your vulnerability is a superpower for you. Um, Do you struggle with vulnerability initially? And do you struggle with maybe being too vulnerable now? I I know I do at times. Well, so there's two answers to your question. The first is yes, early on. um, Yeah, man, I was terrified. So the first time I ever told my story on stage uh, was election night of 2015. Uh, I remember that actually, why it was election night, because I was at a storytelling event in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm originally from. And a buddy of mine had asked me over and over again to do it. And and I kept saying, there's no way in hell. Like, there is no way I'm going to admit on stage to a room full of people, like 150 people. So you had never I'd done, never this, done before this before at all. And I was five years in recovery, wow. over five years. And I nobody oh, knew. Geez. Nobody, like, my closest friends knew that I just disappeared for a while when I was in rehab, right? So 
again, that's that stigma where I was terrified to admit that I had quote unquote failed. Right. But he asked me over and over and over and over and over again. And finally, you know, I was convinced to say yes. But that night I'm doing this storytelling event. And the person who went on before me was the, the woman who ran the LGBTQ uh, wing of the of one of the local colleges. And her whole thing was about coming out and, and what this journey had been like for her. And while that was happening, this was uh, Cincinnati, for those who don't know, is uh, the, Northern Kentucky is a suburb. I mean, that the two states are close together. And she worked in right, Northern Kentucky. Right. And Kentucky that night had... Uh, was was electing a, a, the, the the former governor whose name I'm drawing a blank on before the current one, uh, who ran on a platform that was openly anti LGBTQ. That was like his thing, and oh, yeah. so she's yeah. up there giving her speech while these returns are coming in, and she walks off the stage crying. And we knew each other. I'd actually been the one to recommend her for this, and she comes over and gives me a hug and was like, "This moment is so surreal that I'm telling my story on the night." That like mm-hmm. people like me are, are 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 terrified in my state. Like it was it was it was bonkers. Wow. So yeah. that's an, so I go up after her, and even though I decided to do this, I was still sure that I was like throwing away my life because at the time I worked in nonprofit fundraising and politics, two businesses, okay. two industries built on reputation, right? Absolutely. And here I was going on stage in front of a room full of, of people. And by the way, these events were were noted. I mean, they they got coverage on NPR and in, in, in Cincinnati. I mean, these were these were well known events. So it wasn't going to stay in this room. What I was about to say, and I was sure that I was throwing away all of my you know my credibility, my my connections by admitting that I was a guy in recovery. And uh, I get off stage. I tell this 15 minute story, the speech of, of my journey and, and what had happened to me. And uh, like I said, I knew about 75 of the 150 people in this room. Uh, and I get off stage and I walk back to the, the back area. And my first thought was, well, that's it. You know, my, my life is over here. Uh, yeah. I, I, I literally thought this. I thought I'm going to have to start looking for a new job tomorrow. You know, that was exhilarating. And it was the rush of being on stage for the first time and admitting this is it's oh, amazing. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I still do yep. this, you know, so many years later. Uh, yep. But I was sure that I'd thrown everything away. And it was the yeah. opposite. Now, again, we've we're, this is the second baseball reference on this. My dream as a kid was to be a baseball player. I, I played baseball for 15 years. And winning that, you know, catching that ball in game seven, right? That's what every little boy who wants to be a baseball player dreams of. I was never going to know what that felt like. I'm five, six. I was an okay hitter and a great fielder. was never going to make the major leagues. I get off stage and the crush of people running over to me. <laughs> I knew what it felt like finally to get the kids to win the yeah. World Series because yep. all of this yep. fear that I had had and, and, and sort of fast forward never came true, but especially that night when I thought I had just alienated everybody in my life, the opposite people crying, right. hugging me. How could you not tell me this? How could you keep this, you know, a secret for, for all these years and the weight off my shoulder. Uh, I was a new person that night. Yeah. As you tell that story, I just kind of hearken back to all the moments that I've started conversations with being vulnerable. And after whatever happens, I always look back and I think to myself, you know, had I not told them about my son, 
I, I never would have got to where this relationship mm-hmm. is. And there is something beautiful with being vulnerable and it's hard. I mean, I, I went like the same stage as you went through. It was writing my book was hard. It took like a year and a half. Um, my wife was not a big fan of what I was doing after our son passed. I, per, per, I respected that. Um, some people just literally want to bury their past. Others want to talk about it. I, I thought for me, therapeutically, it would be good for me to, to speak about. And plus, plus it was something in me. I just didn't want him to die. And if I stop talking about Seth, he dies. And so I can't bring him back to life, but I certainly can continue his legacy. And he's not here to do that. And so that was kind of my, my motivation. And um, I, I have to think that you're, you went through the same process. I think we all do as, quote, you know, advocates of <clears throat> mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Uh, I think that's important. So tell me about choose your struggle. I mean, tell me what you do. What's, what's, uh, what's your goals? Um, how can people get involved with, with what you're doing? I mean, I certainly want to turn a spotlight on, on what you're doing. I think it's, it's awesome what you're doing. Excuse me. I'm getting over a head cold here. Um, so I started choose your struggle that night in 2015. Uh, it, it, the, 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 the slogan itself, choose your struggle, which is now my hashtag, the name of my company, my, my, Thank you. I love it. It it really comes from this idea that I was born uh, into a a, a well-known and well-to-do family in Cincinnati. Uh, I never had to worry about was I going to be able to keep a roof over my head or food on the table. Uh, I I never had to worry about what will I be loved today, right? I I, I was wrapped Mm -hmm. up in that. And so I got the privilege of choosing what I was going to struggle for. You know, what was the meaning of my day going mm. to be? And when I hit my lowest point, uh, when I was struggling with addiction and, and uh, my mental health and, you know, when every day my struggle had become, am I going to make it through this day? Am I going to avoid withdrawals? Which for those who don't know is the greatest fear when you're struggling with addiction because withdrawal is just awful. It is just torture. Um that was my struggle. And when I got into recovery, it was like, uh, I realized that I got to choose again. I got to, I got to make Mm. the choice again of what my day was going to be. Mm -hmm. What was my struggle? And so that's where I came from was, was that realization. And it it has taken many forms, uh, everything from, you know, helping people see that, that, that even as awful as life can be at times, uh, sort of in you are a walking uh, poster child for this, there's always a choice to be made. In your case, that choice was mm-hmm. to keep fighting, to, to write your book, to, to keep your son's legacy alive, right? What a beautiful choice that is. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we all have those moments of choice. And for me, that choice has been to fight to end stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy. That has been that choice for me. Uh, and I do that through multiple podcasts. Um, I do that through speaking and storytelling, which I think are, are they go hand in hand, but are very different. Uh, I too have a mm-hmm. book coming out, hopefully later this year, it might be early next year by the time we get around to this thing. Oh, yeah. great. Um, and just constantly 
going back to a question you asked earlier about being too vulnerable. Uh, <laughs> my wife knows that I am so much fun at parties because I'm that guy. I, I, no offense to the people who like doing this. I don't care what route you you take to get to the party. I don't care what the weather's like outside. If you open with that, I'm going to immediately change the topic. And I don't yeah. do small talk because we don't have a lot of time, you know, especially if it's just like a, yeah. a passing conversation at a party. I don't want to waste it talking about the weather. The weather's the weather. And and we're going to mm-hmm. have a real conversation. Last summer on on my birthday, my uh, my wife and I are driving uh, to a, a, a barbecue place because big barbecue fan, and and we're listening to NPR, and they had a person on there, a young woman whose mission was to get rid of small talk. And what she did is she walks up to a you know she's buying tickets at a movie, <laughs> right? And while right. they're waiting for the tickets to print, of course, oh, how's your day today? All that that stuff. She doesn't do that. She launches right into a very personal question, uh, and. It, I, love well, well, I love that. I love that. Stick with me here. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> Maybe I won't yeah, love so it now. <laughs> her, her, of course, the, the, the interviewer breaks it and goes, we have to ask, what question is it that you found the best results from? And she said, you're not going to believe me, but the question was, how did you lose your virginity? And her. Oh, so here was, her, here was why she, she, she said that, right? Either the person immediately shuts down and she goes, you know what? Yep. That's fine. They weren't going to want to go deep with me anyways. That's okay. That's their choice. Or right. they're going to go, you you really want to know about this? And yeah. And the, the the that story in itself reveals so much more about that person's world, right? What music was on or movie oh. or what was your high school girlfriend like or, or boyfriend, right. whatever the case, right? There's so much to be learned, not from the specifics of that story, but by the ancillary information. And that's oh, yeah. And so to her, that was the best world builder. And so I love that. I love that idea. Maybe not that question, but I love that idea <laughs> of, look, I don't want to have these small conversations. I want us to connect as people. And I'll tell you the question right. that, that has worked best for me, for for the younger viewers, maybe you, you might have missed this one, but there's a movie called Bill and Ted. Uh, and, uh, no, so seen, in the yeah, second oh, yeah. movie... Yep. Uh, Bill and Ted play the Grim Reaper for their souls, and they play the, him in Connect Four. And so my brothers and I growing up, were, my, I'm the oldest of four boys. We were big fans of Bill and Ted. And we loved that question of if you had to uh, play the Grim Reaper for your soul, play death for your soul, mm-hmm. what are you so confident in that you would say, yeah, that's what I'm going to choose? And that question, again, sort of to the how did you lose your virginity question, tells you so much more about that person, right? You know, someone says, oh, I, you know, actually, I've been doing this for about eight years now. And so I've, the answers have been all over the map. But, you know, somebody says like, uh, oh, I think baking. Really? You know, why baking? Did you bake growing up with your mother or your father? You know, what is it? What's your favorite thing to bake, right? These are the the, the, the the questions that, again, tell you so much more about the person's world and help you connect with that person better. Much more so than, yeah, how'd you get here today? Did you take the 405? I don't care. And that doesn't tell me anything about your life. Yeah, I mean... There's so much wisdom in what you're just covered, because if you, if you think about normal conversations we have with strangers, and I, this 
I was on the plane flying back from my son's a college golfer. So I was flying back from uh, Nevada. He was playing out there um, at Boulder Creek Country Club. And I'm sitting in the middle and there's a guy on my right, guy on my left. And Denver to, I'm sorry, um, Nevada to Denver is like an hour and 50 minutes. And, you know, most plane conversations, people are pretty quiet. You just kind of sit there, you look at your phone, you kind of stare ahead. Well, the guy next to me actually started the conversation. And I will tell you, by the time we landed, I felt like I had two of my best <laughs> friends on the planet. And it was so funny because we were, we were all really uniquely different. He was a, he was a Christian minister. He was an ex-pastor. Um, he runs a nonprofit helping kids. Uh, he was sober. He had been an, an addict as, as well. The guy left to me was Catholic. And, and he, so he was, you know, he was really heavy in, in, into Catholic being a Catholic. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm agnostic. Basically. I, I, I'm like religiously homeless. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable in my own skin basically, but we had the best conversation. They were, they were very curious on how somebody who's agnostic can, you know, kind of survive all this trauma in my life and not just survive, but actually thrive. And then, um, by the time we landed, I mean, we were like hugging and, and we cried on the plane together, three grown men, the people around us must've thought we were insane. And I thought to myself, you know, this just started because the guy next to me asked me what I did for a living. And instead of me being pretentious, oh, I own my own company or I'm, you know, I'm this and that, and just, you know, kind of very shallow statements. And then we just kind of leave it at that. We intimate very quickly got very intimate and I started off on my kind of my living undeterred hat. I like to call it when I tell my other boys, it's like when someone asks me what I do for a living, they, they better be prepared <laughs> because I go right into my son died. My wife died. I, I help people make better choices. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I mean, I'm all in with this. I, I don't have a retirement date. Uh, I actually quit my investment company a year after uh, my son died that I started when I was 23. So, but I kind of reached a point where I wasn't getting the benefit emotionally, spiritually from making money that, that, that wasn't doing it for me. And I had a lot of clients that were rich and miserable that, that had just fractured relationships with family members, but they, Hey, you know what? They were rich and money can be such a, a drug that we don't talk about. Um, and so, you know, going back to, to what you do, um, let me ask you some some questions I ask a lot of guests that are into the mental health space. You know, I consider you and I really similar in what our mission is. How do you think we're going to fix this problem? Is it fixable? I got certain answers that I use that I like to tell people ways that I cope and how I add arrows to my quiver each day. But, you know, what's your elevator pitch when you're with somebody that, that is asking you, Hey Jay, you know what? The world's coming to an end. This is, this is the apocalypse. Um, how do you inspire people? I mean, what, what do you say to get people to think that things are going to get better? <clears throat> oh man, what a wonderful question. I, uh, so the, 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 my first, I, I have these conversations a lot when people find out what I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I do too. Yeah. And the first thing I always say is I understand and I commiserate and, and more than anything, I empathize, uh, in the feeling that it, it's not going to get better. Um, that you are not wrong to think that way. And the reason I do, mm -hmm. I, I used to, oh, well, you know, it's find hope this way, whatever, right? Uh, in March of 2020, 
I had, I was a year and three months into this work. I took it, this work full time in, in January of 19. Uh, I've been doing it on the side for the four years before that, took it full time in January 19. And I was breaking even. I was on, you know, for those who don't know, being a professional speaker is very similar to being a professional comedian. You got to do a lot of free shows and build up to, to you know, full time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'd made it in about a year and, uh, well, I mean, six years, but doing it full time about a year. I was getting paid uh, regularly and, and then COVID happened and the, uh, you oh, know, the, yeah. the industry died overnight. Uh, oh, in, in two days when the NBA canceled or, or put a pause on the rest of their season, which is when we kind of recognized COVID really took off or, or we started recognizing it. I lost five speaking gigs in less than 48 hours and my entire mm. budget for the year 2020 just hit rock bottom. I mean, I lost tens of thousands of dollars in two days. Mm-hmm. And that was it. My year was over. There was no coming back from that, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, how can I still be of service to people over the next year, this year? The podcast was part of it. I already started that, was was doing that. And I, I started treating that basically like a full-time business. But the other half, and where I'm going with this, I put a call on my podcast, on my website, on social media, if you just need someone to talk to, if you need someone to give you some advice, to whatever, I'm here. Here's my phone number. Here's how you can reach me, right? I figured person may call here or there. Maybe I'll get some emails. That became a part-time job for the next three months. People came out of the mm-hmm. woodwork and they didn't want advice. None of them wanted advice. People wanted to know they were right to feel the way they were feeling, that it was okay to be terrified, that it was okay right. to be honestly furious you know we were at a time when we were hearing nine different things every day depending on where you were looking you know this leader said this this health professional said this people were terrified and angry and they just wanted someone to say you're right it's okay to feel that way right and so that changed everything for me that made me realize that most people yeah they may want some advice down the road but what they want first is that empathy Yes, I too am yeah. feeling hopeless. Yes, I too feel frustrated and angry and terrified. And once you have that, a lot of people just start feeling better. Great, great example of this. Uh, another podcast host who I've been on her show, she's been on mine, doing some really interesting work. Uh, about six months ago, text me with some, she's like, you're very sweet of her. You're better at this than me. What would you recommend I do in this situation, right? And at first I responded to that message, literal, like literally, like, here's what I would do. And then I realized, Mm -hmm. oh, you're not actually looking for advice. You're looking for someone to just be there. And so I said, but I followed up with my, my long rambling text, but if you want to talk about it, give me a call whenever. Literally I press send 10 seconds later, she's on the phone. Half an hour of me just sitting there with her as she cried. She didn't want my advice. She was feeling alone and she didn't know how to say the words, I need help, right? We don't, none of us do. None of us know how to say that, which has made me, whenever I, whenever I'm interviewed, whenever I speak, I always say this, if you're in that situation, and again, we haven't really talked about my story, which is fine. uh, I attempted suicide twice in two days back in 2009. The second day I sent myself into an overdose, spent the night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital. I've been there. I know what you're going through. Hmm. It is really hard to say, I need help. So if you need someone to talk to, 
if you are hearing this right now, watching this right now, and you just need someone to be there, here's my code word for you. I do this every time. Tell me, Mm -hmm. reach out to me. You can find me on social media, on my website, wherever. Tell me you heard me or saw me talking with Jeff and that you had a question. You, you, you wanted to bounce something off me. Say anything like that. Mm-hmm. That I know this. I, mm-hmm. I offer this everywhere and people take me up on it. That's my code word to say I need someone to talk to. And I'll say, great. Here's my phone number. Here's, you know, or here's my Zoom, whatever it is that you want to use. Let's chat and I'll be there. Because those are probably the three hardest words that we just as humans don't know how to say. I need help. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different dynamics in this whole area that we're talking about. And and obviously people reaching out to you for help is in a very important part of the process, but you also as a speaker need to take care of yourself first. And I think that's, that's a problem that I found with, especially my son. And, and when, when my wife passed, was when you convert to provider to caregiver. Um, and then as a parent, you know, I just, every time that phone rang, anytime passed, well, at the end, it was like, anytime the phone rang, I was just terrified that this is going to be it. And it was, and then in regards to what happened in, in, in with my wife, you know, the same type of thing, you know, as, as her grief manifested and she just, got into a worse place. I also feared that, that I would get that call and it took a massive toll on me. I mean, I, when I quit drinking, I lost 40 pounds. Um, you know, I, I, um, I was in a really rough place a few times during this journey. When I say rough, I mean, I've never like attempted suicide, but I, I've actually had those thoughts pop into my head, which is very hard for me to even, even say publicly, but especially this was only like five mm-hmm. months ago and I've been doing living undeterred for you know, almost two years. And, and so people kind of look at me as like this guy, wait a minute. Well, then I just keep, I keep reminding people, I even wrote about this in my book, look at Anthony Bourdain. I mean, you know, here's a guy I'm not comparing myself. Trust me. I, (laughs) I can't even make scrambled eggs, you know, (laughs) you know, he's a tremendous cook and all that stuff. But anyway, so it's like, I look at someone like him and I think to myself, man, I mean, we are really missing the observation part of people who are struggling. It's like, we're so, we're so worried about how we look to everybody else that we're not, we're not aware to right in front of us. Sometimes you can't see the most obvious things right in front of us. Um, and, um, when you hear about suicides of actors and and famous people, it kind of puts you like, wow, this can happen to anybody, you know? And I, I've had many suicide advocates on my show and as you probably have as well. And a lot of times they tell me, Jeff, you know, we really had no idea. I mean, we found his journal. We found his writings after he died. And I had no idea he had these feelings. So, I mean, how do we pull this stuff out of people that don't want to reveal it, especially when they're people that are our loved ones? They're, they, aren't, they aren't like, you know, I mean, I'm talking like immediate family. You know, I, how do you get people to have these conversations I without sounding like you're impeding on their or impinging on their their right to struggle. I mean, everyone really has a right to struggle. Um, how, how do you breach that conversation, Jay? I mean, what, what so do you tell people? Th- well, there's sort of two, two questions there. The first is how do we make this change? And the other one is how do we, how are we there for these people, for, for people who, who we care about? 
you know, how do we make the changes is, it is happening. And, and, you know, I am, you know, to your previous question, I, I, I find hope in the next generation, you know, my generation, I'm an, I'm a sort of solidly in the middle of millennials and then whatever comes after me, whatever we're calling the TikTok generation, uh, you know, that is something that they are simply not putting up with in, in terms of, uh, you know, I love my dad. Uh, he, he is a, he was a wonder, he is a wonderful dad, you know, I, but he also told me from time to time, be a man. You know, I mean, the, these are things that, of course, I think if he yeah. could go back and change, he would, because he didn't realize at the time how hurtful right. that is and, and, and how harmful right. that is. So stuff like right. that, that we're now figuring out, okay, hey, we can put a stop to this, right? I, I, my wife and I have no plans to have kids. But if we did, I would never tell my kid not to cry. You know, I would never tell my kid not to not to show his emotions and, hey, you're overreacting or something. Let them act the way that they feel and, and be there, for, right? Yeah. So, so that's the first answer. But the second answer, how do you actually, how are you there for the people that you care about? This is something I talk about a lot because it's really hard for us and it goes counterintuitive to, 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 sort of how we act as humans normally, but you can't force people to open up to you, right? When is the last time somebody yelled at you to tell me what you're feeling and, and you went, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I have to tell them now, right? That, that That's not how this works. Right. The way that I've always ta- told this, and this is how, what I was taught, and I, I love this, is if you want someone to open up to you, show them, like mirror for them what you are looking for, right? So I, I if you have someone that you think is struggling, don't, hey, hey, buddy, I know you're struggling. You need to talk to me. Well, that's not going to help them open up. Sit down with them and say, hey, uh, you know, you've always been so helpful. You've always been so kind to listen. I'm struggling with this thing. Would you mind? Can I can I talk to you about it, right? Help them recognize in you a person who is there, a person who's caring, a person who wants to have those conversations, right? And it's not going to be an overnight thing. You don't sit down with them and say, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. Would, can we talk about it? And the next day, they're not going to call you up and say, great, my turn. But you do that enough that you develop this bond. And that person then knows you as a person that they can talk to. You know, I have that in my life where about uh, probably three years ago now, I read this article. Actually, this this is this will be fun. So I read this article that said ninety over ninety percent of male friendships only talk about three subjects. Jeff, can you guess what those three subjects were? Sports, Sports. was number one. Of course, it's number one. Women is number Women. two. Nice job. No one's ever gotten all three. Let's see if you can be the first. Okay, this is probably a surprise because I got the I got two or three. I would think be obvious ones. Ah, uh, I'm going to fall in. I'm going to fall for this and I'm going to say the wrong answer. I would say. Politics. Oh, you're so close. Well, you're not close. <laughs> it's 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 media. <laughs> so music, movies, TV. So oh, okay. so that's number three. Okay. And if you include it was something else and it's like I think it was cars or something like that. If you include cars, that's 95 percent. Right. The top four. And th- they went on to. That's pretty shallow. That's a pretty shallow representation. Well, of they weren't wrong. Uh, so they went on to, <laughs> no, no, they went on to give these examples where like a guy had been homeless for two years. His best friends didn't know because it just never came up. You know, a guy had been divorced for a decade. The friends never asked about his wife. So he never told them. Right. So right. I reached out to all my closest friends and I said, look, 
you know, uh, one of my best friends, we are bonded over the fact that we're both huge Star Wars fans. Another one, two of my guys I grew up with, we've been, you know, Cincinnati Reds fans and, and, and just sports fans together since we were kids. Um, and of course, we talk about the girls we knew in high school, all that kind of stuff, right? I said, I don't want to replace yeah. any of this. I love it. I, I love our relationships. However, it's not enough for me anymore. We are going to have deeper connections. And I did this with a lot of guys in my life. And it sort of shook out the ones who wanted that and the ones that didn't. The ones that that, mm-hmm. that weren't interested in deeper relationships have gone away. And that's fine. You know, not all friendships are meant to be uh, lifelong, deep partnerships. But the ones who mm-hmm. truly did care about me and cared about our relationship have been right along for the ride. And we've learned more about mm-hmm. each other in these last couple of years than we did in the sometimes decades before that, right? So... Mm-hmm. That is my example of if you want to be there for somebody, take the honest on yourself. Be the leader in that respect. Tell them, hey, I really care about you and I trust you as a person. Here's something I'm struggling with. Would you mind talking with me about it? Right. You you can't you can't just expect that they're gonna be the one to take the lead. You have to be the one yourself. Yeah, there's there's so much humility that goes in in line with reaching out, like you said, and asking uh, a friend to develop a deeper relationship because there's a risk that that may turn them off or, um, but that it also could expose kind of what their motives are as a friend, yeah. you know? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, most of us have, you know, f- probably four or less relationships where I would call, you know, on your deathbed type calls, you know, if, if you had a life or death thing and you had to call four people, who would they be, you know, and it's gotta be a two way street though. Yes. That's one of the things I found out about, um, when I was talking to people at one of the presentations I was making about, uh, the idea of unconditional love. And I wrote a whole blog on this cause I, I don't think it exists. I think it should be, um, limitless love. In other words, I have limitless love for you but it's not a one-way street. Unconditional love basically says you can F me over all day long and I'm going to love you unconditionally. I think that's a toxic, unhealthy way to live. And I, I think media and, and Hollywood likes the romance of unconditional love. You know, I personally think it's a, it's a, it's a distraction from yourself, getting yourself in a really good place. So I tell people, and I have told people, you know what? I don't believe in unconditional love. I don't care if you're my son or my wife or my dad. Um, I will tell you this, I have limitless love. I will love you as long as it's a two-way relationship. And you know what? Maybe that doesn't go with the narrative that society presents, but it certainly keeps me in healthy relationships so I don't get effed over by people that take advantage of me. Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, uh, when I bring this up, when, when I bring this up on LinkedIn, I got like roasted by mostly women. Uh, that just said, this is a, a narcissistic, narrow way to look at it. And I'm going to, I'm going to defend my son till, and I said, I'm not talking about defending my son. You don't understand. You know, I'm not, there's a, there's a, such a fine line between enabling and supporting, you know, and, and maybe you have some comments on, on, on your thoughts on all that, but I, I really think that it's gotta be mutual or, or it's destructive for both parties. A relationship has to be healthy. Both well, ways. I definitely agree. Uh, with the idea of limitless rather than unconditional, because, you know, uh, yeah. 
another actually great example. My best friend in the world just moved to Philadelphia where I live now about uh, three months ago. And he moved uh, same subway stop as me, which overjoyed, right? So we've been hanging mm-hmm. out more. We haven't lived in the same city in five, six, seven years, which is wonderful. And the other day we're, we're having this conversation uh, about, uh, for those of you who haven't been following, in the last couple of years, James Franco, the actor, has been revealed to just be a serial mm-hmm. Uh, basically a young Harvey Weinstein. Some really horrible things have come out about James Franco. Oh, wow. And very publicly, about six weeks ago, Seth Rogen, who was his best friend forever, publicly broke up with James Franco and just said, we cannot be friends anymore. And my buddy was just beside himself angry at Seth Rogen. He's like, look, that's your boy. You defend him. That's you guys have been like these partners for years. You've made movies together. You, you're investing in each other's companies. And I said, I don't agree because if you're my best friend to this person who is my best friend, and all of a sudden it's revealed that you have been treating women the way that James Franco has been treating people for the last decade. I don't think I know you. I don't think that I know the person that you actually are because obviously my best friend doesn't do this. And I want to make that very clear. I'm not saying that he does, but I'm saying if I'm Seth Rogen and it's revealed now, a lot of people, uh, including some of these women who have uh, come forward with their allegations against James Franco have said that Seth Rogen knew all along the way. That's a different topic. But, Absolutely. but if, yeah. if Seth Rogen is claiming, I didn't know about this, that you are not the person I thought you are. I think he's mm-hmm. all the rights in the world to say, and I cannot be close with you. Like that un- unconventional cannot yep. be, or, 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 or unconditional cannot be the, the, the standard, you know? And, and, right. and so I completely agree with you. And, you know, for a personal example, six weeks ago, roughly around this, the same time I was up in New York, uh, it was about a month ago. And a, a, a colleague in, in my field, uh, passed away. He overdosed. Uh, and I was oh, wow. destroyed. Um, this really broke me up. Yeah. We had, uh, I had admired him from afar for a, over a year. We finally got to meet last fall. And what was so sad about this actually is that he lives in New York. We were going to meet for the first time and, and, and he passed away. Awful. Oh, wow. So uh, this other friend that, that I know, a guy that I know, reached out just coincidentally. He didn't, didn't know about this. And said he wanted to talk about something with me. And, and this guy, we've had some struggles to, to your point, sort of a one-way relationship. He's super, wants to, me to listen to him, mm-hmm. but doesn't really do do the opposite. And uh, he calls me, and I didn't answer. And then he texts me and was like, hey, really want to talk about this thing. And I said, I'm sorry, man. Like, you know, this just happened. I'm really broken up about this. I'm not in a good place to, to do that with you right now. <clears throat> now, the right response is... I'm so sorry. You know, let me know when you can talk. That's kind of the bare minimum, right? The the, the real yeah. friendly response is, I'm so sorry. What do you need? Like, do you want to talk about this? His response yeah, yeah. was nothing. He didn't text me back. Nothing. I didn't hear from him for weeks. And then he gets back to me and again wants to talk, pretends I didn't say anything and says, hey, I want to talk about this thing, Right. Uh, I pulled away from that relationship. I said, I, 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 I have taken a step back because to me, that was such an egregious example of somebody who, it, to your point, it, it wasn't that two-way street, you know? Right. A- a- and 
I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think that his that's his view. And 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 he showed me that he wasn't interested in a deeper connection uh, that was on a, a more healthy term. And that's okay. Right. If that's where he is, good to know that. And it like any relationship, it helps you recalibrate your expectations. So at some point. No, no, no. Oh, so 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 yes, uh, I I agree with you completely. And and I do think that the idea of limitless rather than unconditional is, is healthier. Yeah, it is for me because I've been on the other side of some of those relationships. And maybe I've been the one that, you know, wasn't giving back as much too. I'm I'm certainly uh the potential for me to be on that side of the fence is just as high as anyone else. But, you know, I don't know, as I start thinking about this whole thing about the most valuable commodity we have is our time. And right now, nobody has time. I mean, I, I just looked at today, am I what I'm doing today? You know, after you, I have another one, another one, another one. Then tomorrow is just insane. And then I get on a plane and fly to New York and watch the Hawks play. Then I fly to Springfield, Missouri to watch my son golf for two days. Then I fly back and it's like, you know, what am I going to, when am I going to have time to do anything in between there? And it's like, if I got friends that are sucking that time away from me or, or they're distracting me from quality of life, then you got to make some conscious decisions on, on, and like you said, I am developing new friendships at the speed of light. I mean, you know, with, with what I'm doing with, um, the podcast. And then I don't know if you're aware with our tour we have, uh, coming that I certainly would love to meet you when we're on the road. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know about the living undeterred tour that we're doing. Yeah. And, uh, in 60 days on May 7th, I leave Iowa with my two boys in a 34 foot RV that I picked up yesterday, fully wrapped. It says the living undeterred us tour, a mental health initiative, changing the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. And we're going to every state in the United States over 95 days. We're raising a million dollars to give back to all the partner states that support us. And we are coming to Ohio. Um, I think we're in talks with somebody in Cincinnati. I'll have to check with my staff that we have 30 states already on board. And I guess where I'm going with all this is I'm developing so many phenomenal relationships with unbelievable humans that aren't obsessed with themselves or aren't obsessed with you know, whatever. And the further I get into this journey, Jay, and I'm, I'm sure you have epiphany moment moments as well. You realize, you realize how insignificant really we are and that, you know, I feel like when I'm in my bubble that I'm important, but when I meet people like you and I look at what you've been through and I meet my next guest coming up in an hour, what they've been through, it really humbles you. You know, we're not playing a contest. Who's got a faster car. Who's got a bigger house. Who's got, you know, who's got, you know, a better business. It's, we're all vulnerable. And I don't know. I just like this journey that I'm on is, is quite inspiring. It's quite, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that death has provided me in my life to become a better, not a bitter person. That's a phrase I use ad nauseum, better, not bitter, you know, because you went through situations that you easily could have got bitter. Um, and you're probably tempted daily to go back to those roads, uh, as I am it's just not worth it. You know, it's just, it, it's much more enjoyable to be around happy, positive, fun, loving people than it is to be around people that are emotional vampires that are just pulling at you and sucking that blood out of you every day. It's, to me, it's just, I I'm 55 years old, man. I'm older than you, but it's like, I don't have time to, 
I don't have time to be in those relationships. I just don't. I may have got 30 good years left in my life, you know, maybe 40 at best. I'm certainly not going to sit around trying to beg people to be friends and meet with me or impress people. So anyway, um, I'd like to meet you on the journey. Um, I'll have to send you the information on our website and stuff. And what we're trying to do is turn the spotlight on local organizations. So um, Choose Your Struggle could be uh, an entity that we could definitely highlight. Well, on the tour. If you make it here to Philly, please let me know. I'd love to. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Philly. I keep thinking Cincinnati. Well, if Cincinnati. you could see the rest of my office, it's mostly Cincinnati Reds memorabilia, which is actually a bit of a torture today. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a quote that I love uh, from my favorite musician of all time, and that is the late, great George Harrison, uh, who sang, the farther one travels, the less one knows. And it's, hmm. you know, yeah, one of the good. things I admire about myself as I've gotten older, but I admire in people that I uh, look up to, which is uh, they're not afraid. <clears throat> another another three, three word sentence. They're not afraid to say, I don't know. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. afraid. In fact, uh, you know, I find joy in that sometimes <clears throat> because it means I get to learn something, you know, Absolutely. and, and Absolutely. that is uh, something I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. You know, I get asked on these things a lot, what I wish I could tell younger Jay. And, you know, it, it the whole, it gets better is important. Like, that's really important. Um, oh, because, absolutely. you yeah. know, that is why I attempted suicide twice was I decided it wasn't going to get better. But that's mm-hmm. sort of a very specific response to that moment. Mm-hmm. Overall who I was at that time, if I could give them one piece of advice, it would be to smack him in the face and say, uh, to, to quote one of my favorite shows of all time, you know, nothing, Jon Snow, you know, uh, I was so sure that I had it all figured out and God, was I wrong, (laughs) you know, and, and, and disastrously. So, and and now as a 35 year old, and by the way, I got to say, it's shocking to me. You're 55. You don't look a day over 40. But now as a 35-year-old, <laughs> I cannot believe – I know my, reckon, my, reckon, uh, my ability to see what I don't know today is so vastly different than where I was a decade ago. And I mm. wish I had had that maturity back then. That's what I would, I would change. And to everyone listening who thinks, oh, no, I, I think I've got it figured out, I'm telling you, man, I am telling you. Get to the point that you recognize you don't. Get to the point that you recognize that you are, I think that I am, in, especially in my little cone of living that my, my life is, one right. of the more knowledgeable people when it comes to you know, the history of, of, of the drug war in this country and in the world, uh, the use of drugs. I'm very touched by the fact that most people in my life call me for advice on drug use and that kind of stuff, right? To me, right. that tells me that, yeah, I'm doing a good job. But that right. means I know my subject well. You know, I know the history of the Cincinnati Reds, which is worthless history, but mm-hmm. I know it. That doesn't mean... I, I've got this whole thing figured out. It means I am right. really proficient on a couple of things and I need to recognize how little I know outside of those areas of expertise. I'm, I'm laughing because a while back I was on a pre-interview for a podcast. Um, 
super podcast. Um, he, he was a potentially going to be a really good opportunity for me to be on his show. In our, in our pre-interview conversation we had, he was asking me some questions and, you know, they, they were kind of, they weren't, they weren't questions that answers could be ambiguous. They were like, I had to take a stand on type answers. And then I kind of got out of them. I didn't ask him directly, but I got out of them and, and he was kind of vetting me to make sure I didn't come in with major opposing views. And I didn't say anything, but after I got done, I thought that's one of the problems we have is this echo chamber effect. And this is one of the reasons where I got really impatient with social media was all I was doing was copy pasting and you're great. You're great. You're great. I didn't feel like I was doing anything. I wasn't moving the needle. That's one of the reasons why we came up with the tour ideas, just get the hell out of Iowa and go around and meet people. But it's like, you get this echo chamber effect. And I think I'm at the point in my life, Jay, where I want to read a book that's counter to everything I believe. I want to get people on my show that maybe take a stand on something and we want to have a very good dialogue. And that's how you move the needle is conversation. I mean, you, you know who Johan Hari is and you've probably read his book, chasing the scream which is book in the history of drug yeah. addiction it's, i've it's read it it's great i i mean he's like to me he's one of my one of my mentors in this space and it is a tough read unless you have a dog yeah. in the hunt you know unless you really have a reason to read it it is a very it's a tough read i, I have add or i have attention deficit so a book like his this thick with no pictures <laughs> is hard for me to read um but he talks about the antithesis of addiction is connection and that is so, that is so yeah. accurate. And I never, I thought the antithesis or the opposite was right. sobriety. You know, I thought, okay, you have an addict, yeah. you have a non-addict. What do you call a non-addict? Someone who's sober. And I thought, wow, what a great way to look at this is that I think we're presenting this, this, this value of sobriety in the wrong way, because I think we ought to be really focusing on connections yeah. and then your sobriety can be born out of that. And really that's what 12 step relies on is having a sponsor. You know, that that's connection. I mean, you know, I'm, I want to have a drink today, so I'm going to call Jay. Well, Jay's called my sponsor. Well, really Jay's just a human connection. That's what he is. And I think he's onto something. I, I love that book, by the way. I think more people should read it. Uh, you and I could talk about the war on drugs I, forever. I, so a couple of things. First off, Johan Hari, Chasing the Scream, is probably the best book when it comes to challenging. But let me rephrase that a different way. It is the best bestseller challenging the athletics because, yeah. I, I, in fact, when we're done here, I've got a whole host agree. of recommendations for you, but uh, none of them have sold That'd like Johan Hari is chasing the scream. And it's the one I recommend to everybody because it is a great intro and it is right. a bestseller. And so it's not one of these, oh, that guy is just a you know small town, whatever. No, no, this is a bestseller, New York right. Times bestselling author who is going to change everything you think about, you know, drug use and all that. Second. Right. Uh, to your listeners who may not be familiar with my story, I am one of those roughly 20% of people who are in recovery and not sober. Uh, luckily for me, my, my issue was never alcohol. Um, and because of that, and, and, and I got to say this again, being from Cincinnati where whiskey uh, flows like water, I'm very thankful that I have a healthy relationship with alcohol because my wife and I bonded over whiskey. Uh, some of our earliest sure. dates were going to distilleries. It's just still a thing we do together. Yeah. We go to distilleries. And unlike my struggle yeah. with, with uh, prescription pills, I can have a drink and not need 10. When it came to pills, I needed 20. And so I'm not sober. Interesting. And and that is a bigger 
part of this population than most people think. Like like you, most people get into this yeah. thinking, okay, there's either struggling or there's sober. And in fact, right. th- those are two ends of a very long spectrum. And as a guy who does this work hands-on, I, I do uh, harm reduction outreach here in Philadelphia. I can tell you, you. that what you are picturing of addiction is – it is not true for literally anybody and it's all varying degrees of a spectrum. I've known people mm. who are in a the, the worst shape than you can imagine. I mean, just as bad on that struggle with addiction as you can dream and they get up every day and go to work and they have a family and you would never know. And I also yeah. know people yeah, absolutely. who are if you looked at them, you went, oh, that person is struggling with addiction. No, that's actually just their mental health. They don't use drugs. They are just homeless and struggling with their mental health. Mm. So <clears throat> if you take away anything from hearing me today, know this. Again, my favorite thing to say is that I don't know. And, I, you know, I've given a TED Talk. I, I, In fact, the fact that we haven't talked about the, the war on drugs here, the history of it is this is going to be in yeah. a minority for my appearances. That's kind of what my work has really become about. And it took years for me to have the ability to recognize that I was wrong and that I had been both intentionally and unintentionally misled on what drug use is and what addiction is and what the history of the, it is in this country. And once I did, it was like uh, waking up on Christmas morning because I got to relearn something that I thought I knew and realized. And, and by the way, Johan Ari Chasing the Scream was one of my early reads in this journey. And I got to realize hmm. that I was wrong and that I, I got to relearn. And it changed my life because now all of a sudden I am telling this to people who are going, oh, my God oh my God, what? Is this real? And I come with data. I come with my own experience. I come with people who are 10 times smarter than me who have done this research. And it is fascinating to people. And I love seeing that. I love seeing it on their faces, them going, wait, but that that doesn't make sense with what I know. And it's like, I I know we have been misled on this. And a lot of it goes back longer than our great grandparents were alive. and, And there's through lines throughout all of this. But we are living in a golden era of research on addiction, on drug use, and it's changing the way the generations that come after us are going to see people like me who have struggled. And I'm so excited to be a part, a very, very little part, but a part of that journey for a lot of people. You and I are so much alike, man. I mean, everything you say, I I, I absolutely 100% agree. And I look at, I look at what I do each day is an exploration, not an explanation. I'm not, I'm not saying, okay, Jay, these are the things that you have to not do yeah. this, not do this. You have to do this. It's like, to me, I want to break down barriers. I want to end stigma, uh, as you do as well, uh, or at least redefine it, you know, and, and, and change the, the framing of how we look at the, the things. Um, and, and I, I like that approach because I have said in, in my, conversations that I don't like the word sober because it implies a struggle and I just choose not to drink. I'm not choosing to be sober. I just choose not to drink. Now I have a dog named Camus and my cat was named Opus. So, (laughs) you know, where I liked when I drank, you know what I like to drink, you know, Cabernet's and I am confident and I I have, (laughs) 
you, since you kind of opened the door about your relationship with alcohol, I'm confident I could drink and I quit to support mm -hmm. my wife. And I was an alcoholic. I'm not in denial. I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was a functional. I was that guy you talked about. I could drink seven days a week and go in at seven in the morning and work till midnight. I mean, I, that's just attention deficit hyperactivity. That's That was like my counter drug to alcohol. Uh, yet, I realized that when I stopped drinking, things just got a little bit better. You know, my, my stomach <clears throat> felt better. I slept a little better. I lost weight. So to me, it was like I made a decision that I wasn't having a trouble. I wasn't having a problem with alcohol. That's why I quit. I just thought, and once I quit, I just realized it was pretty easy. And this is coming for someone who drank every day since eighth grade. So for you to say you're in recovery, but you're not sober, I'm like, I, I, I can hear a pin drop at a meeting. You know, if you got up in front of a hundred, yeah. hundred people that are out or drinkers and are going through some type of um, recovery and you said, I'm in recovery, but I'm not sober. You could hear all these necks turning and everyone just saying, okay, what did he just say? <laughs> so I admire your, I admire your position on that. And I, I do think there's so much truth to just your own individual relationship with alcohol. Um, and, and for a lot of people, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. I mean, my dad, I've never seen my dad drunk and he drinks like, you know, at, at one point it was like a beer a day, maybe two. And maybe a little shot of vodka when he went to bed at night, harmless. And he's a doctor, you know, harmless stuff, but I've never seen him drunk. So here, here I grew up in a household. My mom never drank. My dad drank, but never got drunk. So I never saw alcoholism until I was in college and, and I got drunk myself. So, you know, I kind of grew up in that family where alcohol wasn't abused, but it was used. So I know it's possible, you know, and I, I think it's admirable for you to make a statement like that. And I'm sure, I'm sure it gets conversation going exactly where you want it to go, Some, right? Sometimes. Uh, I, so it's funny. I've been at- Do you get pushback on that? I, I've been in those rooms. I have yeah. spoken at AA groups. Uh, so full disclosure, again, I didn't come through AA. I tried uh, when I was trying to get into recovery and um, I was going through detox. I was recommended to an AA group. Uh, I walk in, and this is out in, a, in an area called Cornville, Arizona. It's a suburb of Sedona, middle of nowhere. I walk in. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, like seven, eight guys. I'm like picturing it right now in this church basement who are, you know, in their 50s. I'm a 23-year-old hippie. And their attitude was, what the hell are you doing here, kid? Uh, and I never went back. And so I went through detox by myself with a, I went through what's called step down detox, which is what you have to do when you're on pills, um, where you take a little bit less over time. And uh, I tried one more time to go to AA and I went to a, a meeting and nobody showed up and a janitor literally stuck his head in and said, man, nobody comes to this shit. And I went, okay, <laughs> I, I've tried, I've done my best. Enough yeah. of that. <laughs> so, but I've spoken to AA groups because as a guy who does this for a living, I've been invited. And uh, one time it was received very interestingly. I got conversations that I was looking for. Um, a couple of people came up to me afterwards and said, quite frankly, I didn't know there was any other thing, you know, uh, to, to AA that are you telling me there's other groups? Yes, there's, there is other groups. Right. Um, right. And one time uh, the day of, uh, this is the sort of the two ends of the spectrum. It's been all through this spectrum. But one time the day of uh, the person emails me crack of dawn. I'm not even up yet. I wake up to this email. Jay, I finally looked over your 
website. This was after we'd been talking for about a month of me coming in. So why they waited to the day of, don't know. Uh, right. Clearly, your interests do not align with ours. This was going to be at a treatment center. Uh, not only wow. are we not comfortable with you speaking, but we really don't approve of your work. Please reconsider, you know, what you're doing, that kind of stuff. So yes, the whole spectrum of, of conversations. Yeah. And I will say this organization I work with here in Philly, um, they are a harm reduction group. So they are not sort of sobriety only, but the yeah. founder is an AA person, very, very well respected. Yeah, and sure. she yeah. is one of those people. It's it's like, look, AA has good things. Harm reduction has a lot of good things. We need to work with them together and not have them be separate. Right. Um, and I right. like that approach. I don't think AA is bad. I think there's a lot of great things to come from AA. I also think, uh, I, I know the horror stories because I've worked with the people who have called me, come seeking me out to say, hey, you know, this was my experience in AA. Can you tell me where else to look? That kind of thing. So nothing's perfect. No one, in fact, that's my bigger concern. It's not that AA doesn't have great things for it. They do. But this idea that it's right. the only way, well, right. your success Absolutely. rate is like in the teens, man. Why would you think it's the only yeah. way? That's ridiculous. Nothing is the only, nothing is perfect. Even chemo for cancer. You just cherry pick what exactly. you need. So, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it started some great conversations. I really, I'll I'll throw this name out there. A guy that I look up to, his name is Adid Jaffe. He's a doctor out in California. Uh, One of my mentors, a guy that I've, I've become friends with really, really respect him. He is an AA guy who started his own basically AA based treatment center was just soul crushed by how many people he was losing. And he, and he's a therapist uh, and, and, went, you know what, there's got to be another way. And now here he is 15 right. years later with this whole program. And he's written a book called The Abstinence Myth. And, um, you know, he's in recovery himself and just uh, really yeah. a fascinating person uh, who helped me learn a lot. Um, and, and there are like, you know, there are we are the minority people who are in recovery, but not sober. We are the minority. And by the way, if I need to give this caveat, I am not telling you that you should try to go drink to anybody watching or listening. That is a very deeply right. personal choice. Um, I knew that yep. I could because even at my worst, I never struggled with alcohol. In fact, I didn't even like yeah. alcohol when I was at my worst. I was so messed up that I didn't drink. Um you know, the two things I don't touch are the two things I struggled with. And that was pills and cocaine. Everything else yeah. I've had healthy relationships with. And and you also start to understand, <laughs> this is a little bit more about me, but the thing that I struggle with the most is coffee. You know, it, it, by the DSM-5, which I had the, the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health, which I have sitting right here next to me, I am what you would call a severe, I struggle with a severe addiction to coffee. It, it, I fit all oh, of their, their qualifications. Um, and my question about that is, so what, you know, it, it yes, right. I'm struggling with a severe addiction. Uh, <laughs> who doesn't have an addiction? To and something? is it necessarily right. a bad thing? You know, you and I are having this yeah. wonderful conversation that it's now 11, 10 at my time. Uh, we wouldn't yep. be having this if I hadn't had my morning cup of coffee because I would still be in bed. Right. So that's yeah. my question is, yeah, are there downsides? Of course. I wish I didn't have to. But right. here's the thing. I started practicing harm reduction. And about two months ago, I realized I was drinking about a cup, a cup to a cup and a half a day. And I went, I don't think I need this much. I think to get where I want right. to be, 
I bet I could only do a half a cup. And so I started slowly yeah. going down to the point where now I drink a half a cup of coffee every morning and I am perfect. So for me, yeah. that's harm reduction at its best. I'm still going to use this drug, Absolutely. but I'm going to yep. use it in a safer way that it's not going to give me anxiety, which a lot of coffee can do. It's not going to make my heart race, I you know. So what you've. <clears throat> what you've done is you've like self-prescribed your own uh, <laughs> diet. And I tell you what, listen, Jay, this awesome idea because, you know, a lot of us, we look at the medical profession as the only way we can prescribe things to better our health. And I look at myself as well. Um, I, I took my meditation from 10 minutes to 20 minutes a day. And I took my workouts from an hour to hour and a half on my elliptical. I self-prescribed my own yes. drugs and you did the same thing. You, you, you got, you basically consulted, you know, Dr. Schiffman. You said, <laughs> I'm going to cut my, I'm going to cut my caffeine down. You just basically just prescribed your own diet. You diagnosed yes. your own, uh, ailment and made your own prescription. And, and I think we all capable of doing that. We don't have to go to a doctor every freaking time we have right. a problem. We can, we can do things ourselves. So, Hey, listen, brother, we're up against the clock. Um, that was a fast that hour, was. man. I, I certainly, I have a lot of reasons to reach out to you after this is over. I want to follow back up. How can people reach you? What's the best way to get a hold of you and your organization? Yeah, so my websites are, my personal one is just jshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. My website uh, for my business, Choose Your Struggle, my team manages that one. It's as it's spelled, chooseyourstruggle.com. Uh, you can find me on all social media and the podcasts, um, my, my now three podcasts, if you just are four, excuse me, I always forget that I'm, I'm a host on a different channel, but uh, it just search for choose your struggle and wherever you listen and you'll see multiple podcasts. My, my flagship show is called choose your struggle and uh, season three debuts in April. Um, I have a new show dropping at the end of April. That was a, a, a documentary style deep dive into the life of this woman who started this organization here in Philadelphia called Savage Sisters. Uh, it's a story of her struggle. I interviewed uh, 12 different people and I put this all together in a documentary hmm. style. Uh, awesome. very, it, it's been 10 months of my life working on this thing. I'm so excited for the world to hear it. It's been, uh, uh, yeah, let, let us help. Support yeah. You thank that. you. It's called, Sa it's called, it's yeah. called, uh, choose your struggle presents, uh, made it season one, stay savage. Uh, 10 episodes will all drop at one time at the end of April. Uh, but you can find all this by searching for choose your struggle on your podcast player. Listen, brother, you, you embody living undeterred. I don't think I ever have to tell you to live Thank undeterred you. because uh, it sounds like you do that. But um, thanks for being on the show. Very much appreciate it. And um, I'm going to really try to make it an effort uh, when we're out in, in, in the Pennsylvania uh, uh, area that we can stop. by. I would love it. You know what? I'll buy you a cup of coffee. We'll have some drugs together. I listen to this. I I'm decaf. Now I used to be an addict on coffee as well. And what I've done is I weaned myself. I, I bought half calf which is on my Keurig. So I was drinking half calf for like six months. And I said, screw this. I'm going to go full decaf. So now I go full decaf. So I still drink like four or five cups every day, but wow. it's all decaf. So I'm just like you, I kind of had to dial it down a little bit, but, um, I do still like occasional, a nice cup of Joe extra shot, of, you know, in my latte at Starbucks. But most times I try to go look at decaf, you practicing but, uh, harm reduction, man. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I got. I need to get you back on the show, man, because there's topics we didn't talk about. I want to talk about harm reduction. I want to talk about the war on drugs. There's the, the criminalization. How how we uh, you know like, I guess how we're doing this is such a, a unrewarding way to to try to move society ahead, and it's really holding us back. And so, but listen, uh, 
this has been awesome. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and um, our paths will cross soon. Okay, brother. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun.